Well, if you'll turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 8, that's where we'll begin our text this Lord's Day. Uh, I met a number of folks already this morning who were guests, and just uh, to let you know where we are at, uh, we are walking through the book of Genesis here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, and we began at the beginning of the year, and what you just saw in that video was sort of a, a summary of some of the texts that we've looked at thus far. Uh, we've gone from creation uh, through God's establishment of the boundaries in the garden, and putting Adam and Eve there in the garden and the temptation uh, that they faced and the, the fall that we see in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. That was our text last Lord's Day. And today we are picking up at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and looking at the remainder of Genesis chapter 3 through verse 24. Uh, what we've been looking at in this text is how God is our Creator, has, has created things with order and structure and boundaries and one of the principal things we see him do is in the garden, uh, he creates a boundary for Adam and Eve. Uh, he is benevolent. He gave Adam and Eve, as we looked last week, all the fruit of the trees to eat. He gave them plenty that they could have from, uh, but he placed one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he instructed them not to eat of that tree. And we've looked at many reasons why God did that. I think some of which are that he is reminding them through that tree uh, that He is God, that they are not. He's reminding them why they have dominion that He's given them over a certain area. He has ultimate dominion. And God has also given them uh, things they need to obey. He's given them structure. And, and we see then what happens when they are lured in and tempted, how they have fallen, how they have sinned. And today we're going to pick up in that text and looking at the consequences of that fall and of that sin and how that affects us here today. So if you'll follow along with me, uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And they, speaking of Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called 
his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now least he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out, out, out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray for our time in God's word this Lord's day. Father, we read the words of David in Psalm 4 who says, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And, and Father, that is what we pray today. We pray that you would be gracious to us. We are undeserving of your grace. When we have certainly done nothing to, to earn your grace. And yet, Lord, you bestow your grace on us as you have so many and and Father, we thank you for that and we pray for that. We pray that you would be gracious to us in these moments as we walk through this passage that we've just read. That you'd be gracious to us, to, to, to awake us up, to, to make us alert and alive to the text, to help us to understand it. And, and Lord, help us to respond to it. We ask that you would be gracious to, to, to bring people out of darkness into light. We pray that you would be gracious, Lord that You would rescue those who are lost, Lord, that You would be gracious to be at work in our lives today. We, we pray for this now. In Christ's name, Amen. As I started this study of Genesis, I, I remarked how so many in our culture are interested in genealogies and tracing back their, their family tree to know their origins and talked about how we, we all find our, our original origin here in creation, here in Adam and Eve. I was thinking about this this week, how this isn't just a pursuit of so many in our culture, but even in science. As I look back at an article I'd read a number of years ago, uh, it was the cover article in a Newsweek uh, magazine that was about how scientists were studying DNA in hopes to find out more about our origins, and it led them down a path different than they thought they would go on. Uh, uh, so many of these scientists in this study, particularly at University of California, Berkeley, had up to this point believed that, that this would lead them to see that, that we originated from, from different evolutionary lines around the world, different groups evolved, and, and what they found instead was that there was a common linkage, a common ancestor. It, it pointed back to what they nicknamed Eve. You can look to the pages of Scripture and find this as well. You can find that we certainly do share a common genetic linkage. How we do go back to our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And you can find how in creation, God created them, man and woman, in His image. But how the fall then corrupts all of that. And that's where we find ourselves in the text today. And my, hopes, my hope is that as we look at this text, that we can better understand not only how the fall has affected us too, but that we can better see our need for the gospel. And so we will walk through this by looking at the first point I've put in your notes there. Number one, the fruit of sin is shame and guilt. As we look to the garden, we see what we see in our own lives. We see the fruit of sin in Adam and Eve's lives. We see the fruit of sin in our life. And the fruit of sin so often is, is shame and guilt. We see here, for example, verse 8, that 
Adam and Eve, they, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That, that word cool of the day in the Hebrew is actually uh, more accurately interpreted the wind of the day. God is coming in a wind and they, they know He's coming. And so notice what they do. Scripture says they, they hid themselves. They sought to hide themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees. And we see here that there is great shame. Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has already pointed out to us this, this issue of shame when he talked about creation, when he recounted Genesis chapter 2, that, that God made man and woman and there was no sin, there was no shame. They were completely naked and there was no shame. And yet as we go to Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit they were not to eat of, immediately their eyes are open, they see their nakedness, and there's a sense of shame. Sin brings shame. They feel that. And so what do they do? They try to cover themselves. What are they doing now? They're trying to hide from God. Because not only do they feel shame, they they feel guilt. And to their guilt, they want to distance themselves from God. It's not just here that we see this. You can read throughout the Scripture and see a similar response. In fact, as you look at Exodus chapter 20, you see in Exodus 20, a familiar passage where Moses is giving the Ten Commandments that God has given to him. And right after he gets done sharing the Ten Commandments with God's people, the text tells us there, Moses writes there in Exodus 20, that, that the mountain that Moses had come down from was, was filled with lightning and, and thunder. And, and there's this marvelous sight going on. And the people then say to Moses, in fear, the Scripture tells us, they they pull back, they stand back from the mountain because they are scared of God's presence. They say, Moses, you talk to us and you tell us what God said, but but we can't hear from God directly or we're going to die. The people seem overwhelmed with the knowledge that God is holy and that they are unholy. That they're scared of the presence of God, and so they pull themselves back. Here, Adam and Eve, God's presence, He is there. The wind is blowing. He's coming into the garden, and they are hiding themselves. They're ashamed. They feel guilty. And so they want to distance themselves from God. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. You and I feel guilty as well. You and I try to hide as well in shame and in guilt from God. And so this Lord's Day, perhaps there is something in your life that that you know is sin and you know is wrong, but you are so scared that someone will find out about it. You are trying to hide it. You are trying to cover it. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, you are trying to cover it on your own. And it's a quite foolish notion because you cannot hide anything from God. And we see that as we walk through this text, as we see this, this exchange between Adam and Eve and God. In verse 9, five of the most comforting words we have in Scripture, but the Lord God called. And picture this for a moment, the splendor we've seen of God's creation, the majesty of it, the awesomeness of it, the, the glory of God on display and. Fresh into this creation, Adam and Eve have rebelled and they have sinned and they are hiding from God. And yet God doesn't come into the garden and just wipe them off the face of the earth. God, it tells us in the text, He he comes and He calls out to them. This, 
This text is telling us God is, he is pursuing them. He is going after them. And he does the same to us. You, you may try to withdraw from God, to pull away from God in your sin, and yet the Scripture teaches us about God, that He, he pursues you. He pursued Adam and Eve in the garden. He, he, he pursued so many. Think of how He pursued Jonah. In the belly of a whale. He, he was going to get Jonah. He's going to come after you. He's going to come after us. We see Him coming after Adam and Eve here. And yet they think somehow that they can hide from Him text then shares with us a series of of questions as God comes, as He calls. He says, where are you? Verse 9, He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 11, what is it that you have done? Verse 13, critics will look at this text at times and say, well, here we have a perfect example of how God is not all-knowing, of how God doesn't know things. He's, he's kind of figuring them out as He goes, just like we are. And I think that's a very foolish notion when you really consider it. I don't think that the text is presenting us with a God who doesn't know. I think what we can even see in our own lives is a picture like this. You, you walk into the kitchen and there's the child and their hands are covered with chocolate and their face is covered with chocolate and there's crumbs on the plate. And you say, did you eat the cake? Now do you really not know who ate the cake? Guilt is everywhere. You know exactly what has happened, but you are trying to, to draw them into an understanding, to a confession that they most certainly have sinned. They most certainly have, if you had told them not to eat it, disobeyed. We do not have a picture here of a God who doesn't know. We have a picture here of a God who is pursuing sinful man, who is drawing sinful man out, who is saying to him, Oh Adam, oh Eve, do you know how you got here? But notice how they respond. Adam says, Well God... The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Adam, rather than owning up to his sin, does what? First, he, he points the finger at God. <laughs> okay, God, let, let's make sure we both know how I got here. You did give her to me. So, we're, you know, he, he's kind of pushing the blame towards God. And then he pushes the blame towards Eve. You gave her to me. She gave me the fruit. And yeah, I, I ate it. Eve doesn't offer much better because then after God turns to her, she simply says, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Here she is essentially saying what Adam's saying. Well, God, you did create the serpent and the serpent did this and yes, I ate it. In both cases, neither Adam nor Eve are willing to respond to God and accept responsibility for their sin. And neither are we. Because so often when we are confronted with our sin, we try to blame another person. We try to blame circumstances. We try to blame so many other things rather than saying, yes, indeed, I have done this. We look at our circumstances and we say, well, I was just, the temptation was so great. I couldn't help but to do this. I mean, I just had to do it. The Scripture says, oh no, you don't. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you 
that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The scripture paints a picture here that, oh no, there is a way to escape that temptation. But what we see in our lives is oftentimes we just lump temptation on temptation on temptation. We, we place ourselves in environments and circumstances where we are prone to sin. And then afterwards, we, we blame the circumstance rather than pointing back to the real problem, which is us. We, we blame other people. I don't know what it's like in your home, your families, but I can't think of too many times where I've lined my kids up when I know somebody's done something wrong and it's just chaos and you're trying to figure it out. Okay, somebody tell me. Rarely has one of them stepped forward and say, well, Father, I have sinned greatly. It's all my fault. Uh, They're innocent. Please let them go. And No. that They do what you and I do. What is that? Well, he... Well, she, well, they, well, no, 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 you don't understand, no, no, no. It's exactly what we do. We point the finger everywhere else when the Scripture points the finger at us. We, we are responsible for sin. It, it is us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That is something we personally own. We each have sinned. We are separated from God. And we can point towards others all day long, but the time comes when we must deal with the fact that we, us, each of us, are indeed sinners before God. We indeed are responsible. Even as I'm sharing about this, some of you have probably thought in your head, oh yes, I know someone like that. I know someone who never owns responsibility for what they do, and they always blame everyone else. You know how you can help that person? Look in the mirror and realize you are that person. So you're not going to stand before God on another's behalf and say, well, they did this or they didn't. You're going to stand before God. Scripture tells us before Christ, one day, and you will either be weighed by your own attempts at righteousness, which will fail, or by the righteousness of Christ that we receive when we repent and place our faith in Him and, and His righteousness covers us. You won't be there on someone else's behalf. You'll be there on yours. But Christ, for those who are redeemed, stands there on our behalf, the Scripture tells us. And yet what we see here is what we see in our lives. We blame circumstances. We blame people, I think, even like Adam and Eve at times. We, we blame God. We blame God when we're disappointed and we we look and say, well, God, I really wanted this and this looked like what your Scripture says I should have, but God, you, you didn't give me this. God, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain, so I went over here and you can't blame me for that because you, you didn't do what you said you would do. And yet we find that it is not God at fault It is not God who is in sin. It is Adam and Eve in sin. That we are the ones in sin. And that is the sin that must be dealt with. We see the fruit of that. We also see the result of it. Point two in your notes. The result of sin is conflict and death. In verses 14-19, through here, here God responds now to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. Opposite of the order we've seen them appear in, first God creates Adam, then from Adam, Eve, and then the serpent comes on the scene. So now God goes and He deals with a serpent, then He will deal with a woman, then He will deal with man, and giving them the curse, the consequence of their sin. He goes to the serpent, and He tells him, verse 14, you are cursed, on your belly you shall go. 
I've heard rather fascinating suggestions that this meant that the serpent had legs or he could fly or all kinds of things. The text doesn't say any of that. And I think we somewhat miss the point when we try to come up with some of these fascinating details. I think the point's very clear in the text, verse 14. In dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You look at the Scripture and you see this image in the Old Testament of, of those who are utterly defeated. They eat dust. It's a sense of lowliness. You, you are cursed, enemy. You are cursed. There, there will be signs of your defeat everywhere until the day of your ultimate defeat. Not only that, he, he points to this conflict, this this hostility, verse 15. He's going to put enmity between the serpent and between the woman. This is hostility. This is, this is conflict that will be there until, he says, the day when he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's a couple things going on here. First, God is, is cursing the offspring, plural, of the serpent. The, the offspring he will have conflict with, plural, of the woman, but then singular, he says, the offspring of her will crush you. This is looking towards the cross. This is saying Christ will come from her seed and he will crush you. But there's going to be great conflict even leading up to that, even after that, this conflict that we see in the Scripture. When you think about who, who are the plural offspring of the devil? And the Scripture doesn't in any way say that demons are the offspring of the devil. We see that demons from the Scripture, those fallen. So who, who are these offspring it speaks of? Well, again, I think there's many fascinating suggestions, but I think the biblical, biblical answer Jesus clearly gives is John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are those who are religious leaders of the day who do not believe Jesus is from God, that He's the Son of God, who are trying to put Him to death as the Scripture goes on, as the Gospel goes on, and they're confronting Him, and, and they're talking about their father Abraham and how proud they are of their lineage, of their ancestors, of their heritage. And Jesus says this to them, to these unbelieving Pharisees. Verse 44, John chapter 8. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus says here, oh no, you're not of Abraham. You're of the enemy. You're of Satan. You're his offspring. He's been a murderer from the beginning and that's what you're seeking to do here. Here, here we see this, this image of offspring of the enemy or those who stand in resistance and opposition to the gospel. We see this as well. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever just dwells in sin, it's consumed by sin. It's all they want. Verse 8 says they are of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Both of these passages point back to the beginning, point back to the enemy and say that they're very, very clearly our offspring. They are those who are of their father, the devil, who are of the devil, those who stand in opposition to the gospel. And we certainly see throughout the Scripture, and we see today, those who stand in opposition to the gospel. Those who refuse the witness of it. But then Moses brings this back to the inspiration of the Spirit and, and says this is going to be the conflict, but here's the answer. Verse 15, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. This is speaking, I believe, of Christ's 
This is pointing forward to the gospel, to the cross, where Jesus will defeat the enemy, where we read in Revelation, the enemy will suffer ultimate defeat. What we see here very clearly then is that the first Adam in the garden has failed. He, he did not remove the enemy from the garden. And so God is pointing towards a second Adam who will come. And that's why the Scripture tells us we, we inherit death through the first Adam. We receive life through the second, through Jesus. He does what the first one did not. God goes on in this curse, verse 16 then, to the woman. He says, I'll multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and, and he shall rule over you. I've heard many suggestions on what this might imply. One I heard of once was a man who said that he refused to allow his wife to have an epidural because she needed to feel the consequences of the fall. I wonder if that same man picked thorns for a living and walked to work and felt these things. I don't think that God here is just speaking of just that moment in childbearing. What, what, what we see is the curse is, is corrupting, affecting everything. Uh, Eve in creation, she was taken from the man and created. Why? So that they would have one flesh, a one flesh union, so that they would, they would be fruitful and multiply. And yet here, there's going to be pain in that. Here there's going to be conflict in that one flesh union. In fact, the Hebrew text, when you look at the words, verse 16, it says your desire shall be for your husband. You can translate as well, your desire shall be against your husband. He's going to rule over you. You're going to want to rule over him. And there's going to be tension and there's going to be conflict. Because the curse, sin, the fall, it affects all these things. You see then... Adam is given a curse as well. And, and here specifically, God points out that Adam has rebelled. Adam has disobeyed. Eve has been deceived by the serpent. She is culpable for her sin. But here, this is why the Scripture points to Adam. We inherit death through Adam. Because, verse 17, I told you, Adam, not to do this. And you have not obeyed me. And now the curse will affect everything. The ground will be cursed. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. In our modern technology, we might not think of this so much. I was with some of our children yesterday, as many of you have gone up to the farm machinery show, and I'm looking around, and, and I know zip about farming, so follow me please on this one, I'll try, but... But, but what I'm gathering is that there are hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment to, to ease these things, to make them more efficient, to, to help you in your efforts, so that you are not as a farmer out there in the field day after day going through thorns and thistles. And yet I recall a number of years ago I was in an area of the world that has no farm machinery show in West Africa and I was spending some time with a farmer named Abraham who was a recent convert to the faith and he wanted to show me his farm. He was so proud of it. And so we, we walked out to what to me looked like just another part of the desert. <laughs> but this is his farm. and There's acres and acres of what he's telling about are crops, but what I see are some 
what might be crops, and there's just weed and thorns and thistles just grown up everywhere. And he walked me through his daily process, how for 16, 17, 18 hours a day, he takes a stick with a little piece of metal tied on the end, and he digs out the weeds and the thorns and the thistles. And he works his way across acre after acre after acre in temperatures that daily, if it's not so hot, it's still 110 degrees. And by the time he gets to the far end of his property, all the thorns are back at that end. And so he goes back and he starts over day after day, week after week, month after month, so that he might then have enough food to feed his family for the year. And that day that we went out to this place with him, he showed me how these worms had gotten into his crop, and he said, I'll probably lose two-thirds of my crop to these, these worms. And I thought, that's Genesis 3. That that is not this bountiful garden full of fruit that we will receive. That is labor and toil and, and thorns and thistles. God says to Adam, this will be what you have until verse 19, the day that you return to the ground. Because Adam, you're going to die now. And this wife I've given to you, she's going to die too. I took you from the dust and I gave you life. And you're going to go back to the dust. And here we see how the fall has affected us all because through sin, through Adam's sin, comes death. But there is still hope. The last point of putting your notes tells us of that hope. Number three, the gospel is our only hope. Because after this exchange and after God gives the curse, look at what happens in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Consider this for a moment. God has already named her. We've already read in Genesis chapter 2, He calls her woman because she came out of the man. He, he had called her something. And yet after the fall, He calls her something else. He calls her Eve. I believe that first name was given to, to talk about her origin. She's from the man. But this name is given because it's pointing forward to something else. God, Adam does not name Eve while she has all her kids and grandkids surrounding her. He's looking forward to something. He's saying, there's going to be something. There's going to be many who come from her. He's responding to the promise God has given. From her offspring will come one who will crush the head of the enemy. Adam, after receiving the consequence of the curse, looks at his wife, and I believe looks towards that promise and says, Eve, Eve, the mother of all living, one's going to come from you who's going to correct all this. There's hope there in the Gospel. That hope continues because it says, verse 24, Then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember, they were already clothed, but what were they clothed in? Immediately after their sin, they tried to cover themselves. But God had to cover them. We can never cover our own sin. It is insufficient. God here covers them with what? With skins. 
An animal died and blood was shed so that they could have covering. This is pointing towards a sacrifice that will require blood that we might be covered. And that sacrifice we find is at Calvary where Christ's blood indeed covers us for those who repent and have faith in Him. That we might stand before God one day, the Scripture tells us, clothed in white robes, not so we can all match, but robes that have been cleansed by what? The blood of Jesus Christ. And we see that hope here in Genesis 3. But we also see our desperate need for the Gospel because after this, God takes Adam and He takes Eve and He takes them out of the garden. He takes them away and there's separation that occurs here from God. How ironic that the serpent would tempt them with, oh, you won't just be with God, you'll be like God. And the moment they eat that fruit, and they see their nakedness and their shame, the moments afterwards, they then are separated from God. And it is a reminder to us that you and I, we are separated from God as well. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or is ear dull, that it cannot hear. God can do anything. God can reach out. He can save anyone. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. I've heard many people at times say, Pastor, I, I just feel so distant from God right now. You should. Your sin does that. The Scripture tells us we are all separated. The wages of sin is indeed death. There's separation that occurs because of our sin. But Christ is our mediator. And through Christ, we can be united with God in Him and through Him. Genesis 3 points us towards this. And so the question for you and I then is, where are we right now? You come in this Lord's day, do you feel a sense of shame and guilt because of your sin? Are there things that you are seeking to hide from others? Your spouse, your parents, they don't know. You think, if, if I keep them from knowing, if I, can, if I can hide in the trees over here, I'll be okay. Remember this. Those trees did not give Adam and Eve refuge. But there was a tree that would. And it was the tree that Christ Jesus bore our sin on. That the Scripture says He became our curse for us. You can hide all day long. But until you find your refuge in Christ, you will be separated. And your sin will find you out. And you will be guilty and you will be miserable. And so the answer is repent and believe and be saved. Perhaps you find this Lord's Day that you come in and you're not the problem. Someone else is. And if they would get their act together, everything would be okay. You are the problem. And I am the problem. And we need to stop blaming others and accept responsibility for our sin. And the way we accept responsibility for our sin is to stand before God and say, we can never, never cover our sin. We must be covered in Christ. We must repent and we must believe. Maybe you come in today and you feel that sense of distance. You feel that there's somehow a barrier between you and God. Perhaps it is because there is a barrier between you and God and it is the barrier of sin. 
It's the barrier of your own attempts and works at trying to overcome it, but you cannot scale that wall. You need to repent, and you need to believe, and you need to trust Christ. You may have come in with a variety of things, but the answer is the same for all of us. It is the gospel, and we need to respond to it. And we want to invite you to do that this Lord's Day. If you'll stand with me, we want to offer an opportunity of response. And if God is leading you to respond in any way, perhaps He's, he's drawing you to come and join this church, to come and confess Christ to your Lord, we certainly invite you to do that. If you want to come and pray, we invite you to. But I want to ask everybody here to consider this text this morning. Consider if there is sin in your life that you are trying to hide. Consider if there is a sense of distance between you and God. Consider if you think everyone else is a problem. Consider that you need the gospel. You need to respond to it. And you need to trust in it every day. And God may this very moment be leading you just where you're at to just simply pray and repent and confess and believe. Whatever it is, we invite you to respond during this time. So let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that we would respond not to the words of man, not to the manipulation or pressure, but Lord, that we would respond to the leading of Your Holy Spirit. That we would respond to the hope that the Gospel offers us. That we need not be separated or hiding in guilt and shame anymore. The gospel frees us. Help us to embrace the truth of your word and respond to it during this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.